always find it funny. Ironic might be the wrong theological term. Well, it definitely is. When we sing songs like the one we just sang, and it's just one of those things you need to hear on that morning, right? And this has definitely been one of those mornings in which reminders of that blessed assurance that we have found in our Lord is um, soothing to the soul, right? It's been one of those mornings for me, and so that was a, a touching reminder. This morning we're going to continue in John 6. We're almost to the midway point. We are to the midway point of this long dialogue that Jesus is having with these followers of his. And it's interesting to me as we enter into this Advent season, right? I believe today is the first day of Advent. Uh, And you think on what Christmas is in this country. You think of, you know, even before Thanksgiving started, you see the Walmart and Target commercials with the jingle bells and the Christmas bulbs and the garland. And everyone is ready for Christmas. And it's almost like this over-familiarity with the holiday that breathes such contentment in it that I just was struck by that and the passage that we are going to be looking at today. Because as we enter into John 6, halfway through John 6, and the Jews are grumbling, what we find is an extreme over-familiarity with Jesus. An over-familiarity with the Lord and Savior. An over-familiarity with the second person of the Trinity. And that over-familiarity has dangerous consequences. That being too familiar with something has consequences that might not be expected. And that's the passage today, right? That's, that's kind of what we're going to see throughout this text, is this presumptuous nature of knowing Jesus. Very much so like the American Western Christmas. A presumptuous nature of celebrating the holiday of this Advent. So our text this morning. We're going to start in John 25, or John 6, 25, just to gain the whole perspective of the conversation that we've been walking through. Um, But our focus this morning is going to be 41 to 51. 41 to 51. So here's what John records. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? 
Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Remember this, prove it. What are you going to do to show me? Completely missing everything that has happened the 24 hours before that. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, they continued. As it is written, he has gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Here is our text last week. Jesus said to them, not mincing any words, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And here's our text this morning. So the Jews, Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said... Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that one may eat of it and not I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this recording of the events in Jesus' life. For these words in John 6 that just pound into our minds where our nutrients, where our sustenance, where our fulfillment truly comes from. Continue, Lord, to press into us our need for our Savior. May we never miss that. 
May your word go forth this morning. May you teach us and mold us by your spirit, Lord, I pray. Let us be like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So just a bit, a bit, a bit quick... A quick bit of context. Again, they're in the synagogue, right? The day before, literally 24 hours before, less than 24 hours before, they're on the mountainside. Jesus feeds them. He, he makes bread and fish come out of who knows where. Like the wilderness, like the manna that falls from heaven, feeding those people wandering around the desert. Jesus feeds these 5,000 and more on the side of the mountain. Miracle. Wonder of wonder, miracle of miracles. Recalling the Old Testament story. Demonstrating that. The night comes. Evening falls. The disciples go off in the boat. Jesus goes to the mountains. Jesus walks on water. Following his disciples. The people know that. The people know that Jesus did not go. They know that he though is no longer there with them. He's not in the mountain that he retreated to. He has left. He's gone to Capernaum. He is gone. They go after looking for him. They find him. And in the synagogue they have this lengthy dialogue. This lengthy conversation about who exactly Jesus is. The whole point of the book of John is to demonstrate Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah. Jesus is divine. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. And so we have this dialogue that happens between them, saying the Jews, they want to know that he indeed is who he says he is. Prove it. Show us. You are the bread of life. All of a sudden, it hits them. Bread of life, come down from heaven. We know your dad. We know we, were, we could go to the house you were born. What are you talking about? And that, that brings us to our first point this morning. And I mentioned this already. Familiarity breeds a dangerous, dangerous form of casualness. And that casualness has unexpected consequences 41 to 43 the Jews grumbled about him they're belly aching right Jesus says I am the bread of life I am the one the father sent I am the one who has come down from heaven and here they are belly aching this earth shattering earth shaking claim 35 I'm the bread of life 38 I have come down from heaven 40 I give eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. Remember, these are highly religious Jews. These are people, especially the rulers, the leaders of the synagogue, those with religious uh, qualifications, the PhD in Judaism. They hear this and they're scandalized. So they grumble, they bellyache. How is it that you say you are the bread of life who has come down from heaven? Is not this Jesus? Isn't this the son of Joseph? Isn't this the guy whose father and mother are our neighbors? We know them. How is it that he can possibly now say, 
that he has come down from heaven. What were the Jews expecting? Right? They were expecting an overthrow of their occupying nation. They were expecting a political Messiah, a political king to raise up, overthrow the Romans, and free them. A bit like their misunderstanding of the Exodus, of being raised up, overthrowing their Egyptian conquerors, enslavers, captors, and setting them free. But that's not at all what they have. That is not at all the Messiah that they've been given. And so they scoff. They grumble. They bellyache. They are familiar with this man. They know him. They've known him since he was a child. They know his parents. And so they are under this impression. They are blinded, let's say, to the fact that This is the Messiah that they've been waiting for since they have left Egypt. This is the Messiah that was promised to them. Here's what Matthew records in his gospel. Matthew 13. And when Jesus had finished these parables, right? Jesus is teaching these parables. Matthew 13 is just parable after parable after parable, demonstrating different elements of the kingdom, different things about himself. Parable after parable after parable. Teaching after teaching after teaching. This story that demonstrates some kind of spiritual salvific truth. Here's what is recorded. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished. The listeners, the hearers in his hometown church were astonished. Why were they astonished? Because they said this, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And what was their response? They took offense at him. They were offended by him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This familiarity, this presumption, this disbelief that comes from their familiarity and presumption. What do we hear echoes of in this presumption? Here we have a man, the God-man, not just any man, the God-man, the Savior of the universe, literally just fed them out of nowhere, walks on water, and now he's the one being questioned about who he is, and it results in scoffing and grumbling 
We've talked already two weeks in a row about Exodus 16 and Numbers 11. But isn't this exactly the same situation? Wandering in the wilderness, crowds of people together, miraculously fed from heaven. And if we recall the Numbers 11 passage, what is the result? Grumbling. They want meat. Bread's not enough. We want meat. Bread's not enough. God, take us back into slavery, please, so that at least we can have those good vegetables the Egyptians had. Their familiarity with Moses, the familiarity they had with God himself, led to what? Led to grumbling. Led to scoffing. And it's interesting, I, I, I compare, we remember this comparison, right? What is Moses' response in Numbers 11? Oh, Lord, kill me now, I cannot deal with their grumbling. Kill me so I don't have to deal with it. The exact opposite of Jesus' response to the grumbling. Because here we have an element, and I'm getting ahead of myself, But here we have, finally in this passage, a new element introduced into this conversation. Not just about the bread of life, but we now have this new element added in here that this bread of life must be destroyed. I'm putting the cart ahead of the horse. I'm getting ahead of myself. But this this bread of life must be consumed. It must be destroyed. It's the exact opposite. Moses is complaining. He wants to be killed because he can't deal with it. Moses, Moses is just, he's fed up. Whereas Jesus, he offers himself up to be destroyed. I'm getting ahead of myself. But we see the parallels. So this is, I think, one of the biggest warnings for the Bible Belt. We, we can argue about if this is the Bible Belt or not. We, we could very well beyond the border of the Bible Belt. Coming from New York, this is definitely the Bible Belt, but maybe coming from even farther south, this isn't. But this is one of, I think, the biggest warnings for the Bible Belt. Familiarity breeds dangerous, dangerous complacency. Think of the gigantic church one mile down the road. And I'm not creating a broad sweeping statement by condemning everybody in that building. But there are large swaths of people in this city, in this region, who think they know Jesus because their mommy and daddy knew Jesus. They think they know what Christ has called them to do because their mommy and daddy knew what Jesus called them to do. That's what they do on Sunday mornings. For 50 years they went to church with mom and dad. And so now as they have their own children, we're going to church too. It's just what you do on Sunday morning. Think of the t-shirts. The, the commercialization of Jesus, right? The Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt with the comedic Cartoon-looking Jesus giving two thumbs up like Fonzie. It's a perfect example. 
that we have become the church, maybe not using the term the church, but people have become so complacent in thinking they know Jesus that it's become a mockery. They might not see it as a mockery, but the rest of the world sees it as a mockery. This complacency, this familiarity. My mommy knows Jesus, my daddy knows Jesus, so I know Jesus too. I've walked the aisle, I've heard Billy Graham preach, I've responded to the altar call, I've prayed the prayer, maybe I've been baptized, maybe not, but I've prayed the prayer so I'm good. That's exactly the world we live in. That's ex exactly the world we live in, right? You grew up having those conversations in school, especially maybe here. I know in New York you did, right? I, oh, I'm Catholic. My mom's Catholic. My dad's Catholic. I'm Catholic. I didn't even know what, what that means. I couldn't articulate anything about Catholicism, but I'm Catholic because my grandmother's a Catholic. I'm sure that's similar here. I'm Christian, I'm Baptist, I'm Methodist, I'm a Christian. Why? Because mom and dad are Christians. It's my family heritage. We think we know. We think we believe. We think that Jesus is indeed our Lord and Savior. Right? We even know the language. We know the lingua franca. The language of the people. The terminology that's used. You can sit in Sunday school and, and list off the Sunday school answers. You can define the terminology. You know the language. It's common. But we have become, many have become so familiar that our senses have been deadened and dulled to the magnitude of who Jesus is. Every time I go to work, Right? The, the facility, the training facility, is across from the river. There's the factories right along the river on River Road. We work across from that. And it smells so bad all the time. I don't know if it's the river or the factories, but it constantly smells. But after you've been on the field for two hours, you don't notice it anymore. Your senses have been dulled to the stink. Right? Then you go out the next day and you're like, man, it stinks. You're out there for three more hours and it's gone. You don't even notice it. And it gets to the point where you don't even notice it anymore. Complacency. Is not that the same exact thing? We hear our mommy and daddy talk about Jesus. Say the great truths about Jesus. And we just think we know them. Because it's familiar. Complacency. Complacency. Remember a few weeks ago I mentioned the, the Wesley brothers, right? The holy club that they had at Oxford. Raised in Christian homes. And yet their belief in Christianity was that they needed to strive and serve to the point of they were being mocked as the holy club. Striving and serving so much so that they got on a ship to cross the Atlantic and then they realized they're not Christians. They were familiar. They were familiar until Jesus saved them. 
until they encountered the Moravians, the German Christians on the boat, and realized we aren't Christians. Familiarity. Familiarity. It's a plague. It's a plague in this region. It's a plague in this city. It's a plague in the South. It's a plague in the United States. We're so familiar that we think we're Christians. We think we're believers. And it's an equal warning for us in the church. It's an equal warning for us who love the things of God. We pride ourselves on what? On our theology. We pride ourselves that we have been instructed by some of the world, most world-renowned theologians right here in this city. We pride ourselves on the pastors that are surrounding us. We pride ourselves on the heritage that we proclaim came before us, right? The Puritans. The great truths of the Reformed faith, the confessions and creeds, John Wycliffe, Jan Hus, these guys who preceded the Reformation, we claim them as ours. <clears throat> A few hundred years after Jan Hus, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, we claim them as ours. The separatists in England, the Puritans, we love them. We claim them as our lineage. Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones. These are the people we pride ourselves on sitting under. We learn from them. We learn great, great things from them. But let us always be weary of that thin line that we can cross in which it's no longer about knowing our Savior, and it's more so about knowing stuff. That line is dangerous. We have crossed it. Many in this building have crossed it. Many in this building before us, before today, have crossed it. We pride ourselves on this familiarity, on what we know. A few months ago, I sat out in that little room over in the entrance uh, way over here on the couches with a former church member who wanted to baptize his child. And I just asked questions. Just asked questions. That night, calls Pastor Jeff, calls Jeff, says they're leaving. They're gone two weeks later. Because they were wanted to ensure that the people we baptize are indeed believers. Because if we go and baptize people who are not believers, guess what that does? It breeds familiarity. I've been baptized at four years old, therefore I am good. So many churches do that. Come to find out, this individual was baptized at the age of four years old at the church down the road. Familiarity is not just for cultural Christians. Familiarity is for us too. Our knowledge that we think we possess can 
condemn us. If we don't have the recognition and realization of Jesus being the bread of life who has come down from heaven and clinging on to that as our only hope. Right? Consider the Jews of this passage. They are exactly like these reformed theologians of today. They know. They know the Old Testament. They know the first five books of the Bible. They know the prophets. They know the history books of kings and chronicles. They know the books of Ruth. They know all the minor prophets. They know what the Old Testament says. They judged everybody else's life by it. They know what the Word of God says. And yet Jesus is still standing here at this very minute condemning them because they don't get it. They know it, but they don't get it. They know it, but they don't get it. Let that not be us. That we know it, but we don't get it. Right? What, is, what, is the God, what, what does the scripture say? Even the demons know. Even the demons know. So just knowledge alone means nothing. Knowledge alone, in fact, breeds familiarity. Breeds presumption. Breeds exactly what Jesus is pointing out in the Jewish elite of the synagogue. Let us not be that way. Let us not become too casual. Let us not become too comfortable where we are okay saying Jesus is our homeboy and giving the thumbs up with the Fonzie smile. Jesus is much more than that. He is much more than that. Let our lives be demonstrations of the doctrine that we know. Let our lives be the demonstration of the doctrine that we know. Let our lives be filled with a word we don't use enough, piety. Let us be a pious people. A people devoted to living a life that represents the gospel. Let us be pious. Let us live lives of piety. Because if we become too familiar, if we become too comfortable, if we think that Jesus is just our homeboy, if we think, hey dad, we're dangerously close to familiarity, over familiarity. Yes, God is father. Yes, he is. But let us not forget that he has created everything you have ever known. And he can destroy everything you have ever known. He's not just dad. He's father. He's not just homeboy. He's Lord and Savior. Let us not become too casual, too comfortable in our standing. Number two. Irresistible grace draws the elect to the throne of God. So last week we talked about, right, Jesus is pointing out to these Jews who are grumbling, you don't get it. You don't get it. Those whom the Father has chosen will come to me. 
And he's subtly hinting, although it's not so subtle, you aren't it right now. You are not coming to me. Right? Last week, we talked about these, these rich theological doctrines that should do what? Lead us to worship. Create in us a sense of piety and devotion. This, these things of election. Right? That God, before the foundations of the world, we talked about decree. He has decreed in one instance all things that have come to pass and all things that will. And included in that decree is election. Included in that decree is predestination, to use a, a, a hot term. Ephesians 1. You cannot read Ephesians 1 and not see it. You can't read the Gospel of John and not see it. You can't read the book of Romans and not see it. That in God's decree, he has chosen a people for himself. And that's what Jesus is saying in this text, throughout this text. That those whom the Father has decreed, they will come to him. They will hear his voice. We talked about the obedience of the Son. The obedience of Jesus to not carry out his own purposes. To not do what he wanted to do. But to do what it is that the Father wants him to do. Today. Another beautiful, beautiful topic. This irresistible grace. Verses 44 and 45. No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. This irresistible grace. Remember last week I, I talked about the 1689. The importance of having a confession that lays out for us exactly the, this, this road map of what we believe. So we avoid the ditches. This 1689 lays out nicely for us this irresistible grace. What this term means that I'm using. Those whom God has predestined into life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call them by his word and by his spirit, out of the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. And he takes away their heart of stone giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his mighty power, determining them to that which is good. And effectually, effectually, drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so as they come, most freely, being made willing by his grace. This effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone. Not from anything at all foreseen in man, nor from any power or agency in the creature. The creature being wholly passive, being dead in sins and trespasses, until being quickened and renewed by the Spirit. He is then thereby enabled to answer the call. That's what Jesus is talking about here. This irresistible grace. This concept of God acting and drawing, and alluring, and calling out to sinners so they come. No one can come to me unless the Father 
who sent me draws him. The calling, this irresistible grace of being, as he says here, quoting Isaiah 54, which we'll get to in a minute, being taught by God. Being taught by God. This work, this calling does not just make for the potential of sinners to come. This doesn't just say, yes, you can choose to come if you will. That's not what irresistible grace. It's not this idea of what they call prevenient grace. In which God just says, he he flicks the switch and says, yes, now anybody can come to me. That's, That's not what this means. Irresistible grace is the effectual calling. He actually causes sinners to come to him. He doesn't just make it possible. He calls them to him. We cannot accidentally stumble into Jesus. To quote the fray, you know, I don't know if you know this, the band, the fray. I found God on the corner of first and Amistad is one of their song lyrics. That's not it. That's not it. We can't find him. We don't stumble into him. He draws us. He pulls us. He calls us towards himself. And sure enough, as I've said week after week, John and Jesus are continually referring to Isaiah. Constantly. And this passage here, 45, and they will all be taught by God. I've already given it away, but guess where this comes from? Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54. This this beautiful series of passages in Isaiah 52, 53, 54, 55, all talking about this covenant of peace, the suffering servant. Here's what is written in Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. What are we getting a picture of? Expansion of splendor, of elaborateness. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Why? For your maker is your husband. The church, the bride, your maker will be your husband. The Lord of hosts, his name, the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. Do you hear the echoes of redemption? You will people the desolate cities. You will no longer be disgraced. You will no longer be be a beast of burden. No, your maker will be your husband. Redemption. 
The Lord has called you. The Lord has called you. This irresistible grace. The Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, he will do what? Gather you. You cannot be gathered unless somebody goes out to do the gathering. You see, being gathered takes a gatherer. In overflowing anger for a moment, my face, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. These are words to his people. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed from you, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Listen to this. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and I will lay your foundations. I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. You see, this is God's work of irresistible grace, bringing his people in and establishing them. And here is what, I, what John is talking, what Jesus is talking about. This passage, this verse, 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established you shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear and, from ter- fear and from terror, for it shall not come near you. These, this is what, this is the constant echo of Jesus in the Gospel of John. These restoration, redemption passages of Isaiah that these men of the <coughs> synagogue should know. These passages of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, right? The suffering servant passage. Isaiah 54, this one of redemption, this one of gathering in, this one of establishing a foundation. And then Isaiah 55, which we talked about last week as it was echoed in last week's passage. This one of abundance. This one of abundance. Come, right? Don't Waste your money on bad food that will rot, but come to the food that will give you eternal nourishment. 55 in Isaiah. John, 30, uh, John 6 in the earlier passages. You see, the Father's call on his people does not return void. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard the conversion story of C.S. Lewis, right? He was friends with this group of literary authors, writers, creatives, Tolkien being one of them. And, and one night, they went out for a stroll along Addison's Walk in Oxford. Lewis, Tolkien, and Hugo Dyson, another member of this group. And it is on this walk in which the Lord uses Tolkien and Dyson to illuminate these truths of God being the, as it, to use Tolkien's language, the true myth the true story 
illuminated to C.S. Lewis through the conversations of Tolkien and Dyson. And then at some point later, you can kind of picture this comedically, he's in a motorcycle in the sidecar while his brother is riding the actual motorcycle. Lewis is sitting in the sidecar, going to the zoo. I don't know, he doesn't have children, I don't know. He's going to the zoo with his brother. And on this trip to the zoo, while he sits in the motorcycle sidecar, he feels this great warming inside of him. And he, to put it in his words, is the most reluctant convert. The Lord called him. Lewis could not resist that calling. But not in a way of slavery and against your will, being pulled, kicking and dragging and screaming. But in a way that is so sweet that you can't ignore it. Recall your salvation story. Recall your conversion. Recently I was having a conversation with with an elderly man. And he was talking to me about the early days of his marriage. And how he refused to go to church with his wife. Refused. Would not do it. For weeks and weeks he scoffed. He grumbled like the Jews in this passage. Until he went one day, reluctantly maybe. And he could not but help to be overwhelmed by the gospel message that he heard. The chains were removed. The concrete was falling off the shoulders. To use, what is it? I don't know if it's Wesley's term. His heart was mysteriously warmed inside of him. This irresistible grace. I know I've mentioned Hosea many, many times. Remember the story. Remember what Hosea is called to do. The Lord spoke through Hosea. The Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went, and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. She conceived and bore him a son. The son's name is Jezreel. For in a little while he will punish the house of Jehu. They have another one, another child. A daughter. And she is told to name, he is told to name this daughter, no mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel. They have another son. And they are to call him, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God, is what Hosea says, or is what God says to Hosea. And then there's this, there's, this, there's this beautiful poem in chapter 2. This beautiful poem. And the poem concludes, and then we get to verse 14. And here's the point. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Talking about Gomer. I will allure her. This wife of infidelity. This wife of unfaithfulness. Right? The wife, the what we all are outside of Christ. 
unfaithful. Unfaithful. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Slavery, bondage. Remember, this is talking about Israel. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. What did we just read in Isaiah? My husband, my bride, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal, the idol, right? For I will remove the names of Baal from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. This covenant of peace. Every time we hear this covenant of peace in the Old Testament, it's referring to this messianic covenant, this Jesus that's coming to establish it. And he continues, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel the name of that firstborn son. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. I will have, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. You see this irresistible grace that is demonstrated in Hosea, that is discussed in Isaiah, of the Lord's effectual call. The Lord's effectual call. And finally, for the sake of time, again, we will move through this quickly. <clears throat> the last point. The mediator's offer. The mediator's offer is for those who come. For those who come, who are hungry who haven't been satisfied, who are perishing, who are faithless. The mediator's offer is for them. 46 to 51. We have this kind of bizarre inter, in, uh, interlude, this, this kind of oddly placed phrase here. Not that anyone has seen the Father, Jesus is saying. Because remember, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God, quoting Isaiah 54, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen me, the Father, uh, or not, has anyone, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. We have this kind of odd statement that is made in the middle of this monologue. So what are we to do with, with verse 46, that is oddly interjected, oddly placed in there. But see, we have to have this connection with verse 45. Those who have heard and learned from the Father. Jesus says, no one has heard and learned from the Father. No one has seen the Father except me. So what is, what is Jesus saying? 
What is he saying? He is saying that he himself is the mediator. He himself is the only way in which you or I can see the Father. He is the sole, singular, only avenue by which we can be united and taught by the Father. You will not receive teaching of the Father from any other source. Not from the trees outside, not from the storms that are clearly blowing overhead, not from the book of the Quran, not from any Buddhist or Confucian teaching. None of those things are going to give you an input from the Father. None of those things are going to reveal the Father to you. It is solely by the only one who has seen the Father that we may know the Father. Jesus, the mediator, he says he is the only one who has seen the Father. He is the only one who can share of the Father. Hebrews 1, remember this a few years ago, long ago, and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by who? His Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And here's the kicker, right? He is the radiance of the glory of God. And what? The exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see, you see, the radiance of the Father, the imprint of God, the God incarnate is Jesus, the mediator, the only one who can demonstrate, show, depict, reveal the will of the Father is the one who has seen the Father. And that is only Jesus. He is the mediator. The one that goes between, the one that stands in the middle of, he is the one that you must know. And he goes on, Jesus goes on. Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. He is the one. And he recalls again, Exodus 16, Numbers 11. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, but what was the result? They died for 40 years. They could not enter the promised land until every single one of the grumblers was dead. None of them saw the promised land. Moses couldn't even see it because of his disobedience. They died. They ate the bread from heaven, the ones that they so smart alecly think they responded to Jesus with. They saw, they ate the bread, they partook. And what did Jesus say? They died. They didn't enter the promised land. They didn't enter Jerusalem. They didn't enter the land flowing with milk and honey. They died. They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it 
and not die. You see, there is this bread that's out there. You can partake and you will die. And I'm not speaking now of literal bread, though literal bread, if that's all you have, you will die too. I am speaking of whatever it is that you find your fulfillment in. You may partake of it. You may eat of it. But you will die, is what Jesus says. But you will die. But here is one. He himself is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. The juxtaposition, the opposite. You see, there's all of this out there that you can eat and die. And there's this bread that you will not die. And here's what I was saying before. For the first time introduced into this monologue, into this dialogue, into this conversation, is the fact that the bread must be consumed. It must be destroyed. I am the living bread. 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So you see, now, he's, he's not just speaking allegorically, though he's not literally, he is, but he's not. He is speaking allegorically in that we don't eat Jesus, right? We're gonna, David's going to have the pleasure of that passage next week. We don't eat him, right? As the Catholics in the Eucharist, this transubstantiation, right? As the, as the priest holds it up, takes it out of the little cage in the back of the stage, brings it up. At some point there, that becomes Jesus' literal flesh. That's what the Catholics say. The Lutherans say that too. Where do you think they get that from? Jesus is not being literal when it comes to eating his flesh. Right? When we take the Lord's Supper, we are talking in a way in which the Lord is spiritually present. And we are remembering his work. But his flesh does literally need to be destroyed. As you consume your food, you in some way destroy it. And in Jesus' work, his flesh must be consumed by the Father. He is consumed on our behalf. He is consumed by the fact that as he was up on that cross, all of our sins had been poured out upon him. And he was consumed. His flesh was destroyed. You see, to do this salvific work, to do this work of salvation on people's behalf, he must be destroyed. He is the only option, which is why he came to do the will of the Father. Isaiah 53. So Jesus offers himself. 
He gives of himself. Very unlike Moses in Numbers 11. Please just kill me now so I don't have to deal with this. Jesus offers himself as this bread of life to be consumed and sacrificed and offered. He serves himself up. He's been betrayed by his own brother. Not literal brother. He's been arrested in the garden. He puts up no fight. He is taken to the kangaroo court. He is tried, tried and found guilty. He makes no defense for himself. He's then taken from the court to be beaten, to be tortured, and then he is taken from there to be crucified, from there to be then mocked by the people watching for the purpose of atonement, to atone for our sins, to take them upon himself, for the purpose of redemption, to buy this people for himself, to buy them back, to pay the price for them, for the purpose of exchanging the great exchange of 2 Corinthians, to exchange his glory and take on our sin for the purpose ultimately of his victory, the conquering of this suffering servant that leads to this foundation being laid that Isaiah 54 talks about, which then gives the splendor and surplus that we see in Isaiah 55. You see, that is the purpose of this bread of life. Not so you can continue to fool around with this bread that will kill you, but so that you can wake up and see, so we can see there is this bread that sustains forever. And we're not to toil and to trifle with it as if it is some thing we already know so well. But we are to continually come back to this well to get the water of eternal life. As he says to the woman at the well a few chapters before this one. Jesus is, is not, not a trifle. He's not a homeboy. He's not a familiar one, though he is familiar. And that's what makes him so sweet to us, is that we can know him, is that we can follow him, is that we can hear his good news and his comfort. And he is that bread of life. He is that bread of life. So come if you have not. Come and partake because otherwise your toils will just lead to death. Jesus says, I am the living bread and come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. That is the offer that he makes to the world. That is the guarantee that he fulfills for his church, for his people, for those 
whom he has called so beautifully. Let's pray. Father, you are good, you are gracious, you are merciful, that you have even chosen in your divine decree to make this way of redemption. So Lord, this morning let us always partake, let us always remember this, this bread of life, our Savior, our Jesus. Let us remember in this Advent season, this bread of life who has come for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.